Episode 147, Ken Siegel, CEO of the healthcare advisory firm Value Capture. He started his career as a congressional aide. One day I got a call, and again, 22-year-old kid from a USA Today reporter. I'm Mark Rabin. This is my favorite mistake. In this podcast, you'll hear business leaders and other really interesting people talking about their favorite mistakes. Because we all make mistakes, but what matters is learning from our mistakes instead of repeating them over and over again. So this is a place for honest reflection and conversation, personal growth and professional success. Visit our website at myfavoritemistakepodcast.com. For more information about Ken and his firm, look for links in the show notes or go to markraven.com slash mistake 147. If you like the episode, please share it with a colleague, share it on social media, rate and review in your favorite podcast app. Now on with the episode. Well, hi, and welcome to My Favorite Mistake. I'm Mark Raven. Our guest today is Ken Siegel. He is the CEO and Managing Director of Value Capture. And Value Capture is a trusted advisory firm that supports chief executives who seek to transform the performance of their healthcare organizations in safety, quality, and profitability. In terms of disclosures, I have worked as a subcontractor with uh, a partner in collaboration with Value Capture for, uh, it's going on four years now. Um, I've served as a senior advisor to some of their healthcare clients. And during pandemic times, I've uh, had a role as director of strategic marketing uh, for the firm. So I just want to make sure that that's all disclosed. And and with that, Ken, welcome to the podcast. How are you today? Thanks, Mark. I'm great. I'm uh, excited to be here and share some of my mistakes. Well, I'm excited to hear your story and, and have a conversation about that and healthcare improvement and leadership. Let me tell you a little bit more about Ken before we get started. Um, prior to forming Value Capture, Ken served as the founding director of the Pittsburgh Regional Healthcare Initiative, and he served for five years as senior program officer at the Jewish Healthcare Foundation of Pittsburgh. And earlier in his career, and I've heard a little bit, I think, you know, uh, I've heard some interesting stories from his career, so I know. Um, Ken um, will have a good one to share. Earlier in his career, he worked in government and politics with various roles, including directing the overnight operations in the 1992 Clinton-Gore presidential campaign war room, as it was famously called. Um, Ken has a bachelor's from Harvard in American history and literature and an MBA from the University of Pittsburgh. So Ken, with these different phases of your career and and the things that you've done, looking back at it, what would you say is your favorite mistake? Uh, Mark, so in, in my career, which is obviously checkered as you've outlined it, uh, it wasn't hard for me to think about my favorite mistake and to really come up with it right away. And it actually occurred during my very first year out of college um, in my first full-time job, which was as a legislative aide on Capitol Hill sort of landed what for me at the time was a dream job working for a very respected member of Congress uh, from a state that I thought was pretty exciting, California. And uh, things got even better for me uh, right away. Uh, I stumbled into a situation where the senior aide above me was about to head out on pregnancy leave. So I got handed a whole set of um, significant responsibilities on, a, on sets of issues I cared about to be the advisor to the congressman and support him. And, and um, one of those uh, was supporting him in his key role in the Judiciary Committee, which had key oversight 
uh, over immigration issues. And we in this office were right in the middle of um, really a crucial phase in immigration policy, which continues, of course, to be very controversial. And the year here was 1988 uh, and 1989. So I'm a year out of college. And three years before, Congress had passed a major immigration reform compromise. Um, and we were in the phase of overseeing the regulations as they were written and put into phase. And the way Congress worked at that time was that um, uh, every member of Congress is responsible for voting and having a sense of what's going on on literally every issue, domestic and foreign in, in the nation, if you think about it. And there just is only so much bandwidth to go around in terms of thinking about that. So my office was one of two in the House side and two in the Senate side that was sort of delegated a lot of the authority of this oversight in an informal way by the formal leaders in the sense that if these folks can agree on things, then we're okay because they have different perspectives. So my boss had, had represented the farm workers. Um, another member in the House uh, had large grower constituencies that depend on immigrant labor. Uh, and then in the Senate, there was a liberal senator who cared a lot about this stuff, Teddy Kennedy, that many people will realize, Senator Kennedy, and a conservative member, um, Alan Simpson from Wyoming, who uh, is an important figure in our history. So one day, um, we were we would all work on these issues together and were looked to, but we didn't see the issues the same way. So we were indeed debating these behind closed doors lots of times. One day I got a call and again, 22 year old kid from a USA Today reporter. This it was, I was already starting to talk to some senior reporters from uh, different significant publications. And I did the thing I was supposed to do. I went on background and uh, talked very frankly with this reporter about current issues in immigration and, and what was and, going on. And, and so sorry yeah. to interrupt, but on background for people who aren't familiar with yeah. what that means and the implications. So, uh, yeah, thanks, Mark. So by going on background, you're saying, look, I will give you information and speak generally to try to help you understand the situation, but you cannot quote me. Um, you know, we would have to talk about that because in effect, I could, I, I would have to be less frank and direct potentially and have to think about that. So it's sort of a ground rule that's established in, a, in, in different um, conversations. And, you know, there are pluses and minuses to that, but it is a convention um, when talking with people with certain sensitive information. So uh, we have the conversation um, and uh, the day, two days later, the morning of the, not the next day, but the next day, I um, get a clipping in my box. This was the days before everything was flowing over our computers via email. And the clipping uh, is a copy of the USA Today story. And my, the congressman has written on the story, see me. And I read the story for the first time. And I had a quote in the story saying that Senator Simpson's bill treated people from whole sections of the world, including Africa, as if they were the plague, not human beings seeking a better life for their kids. And um, 
you can imagine, uh, we'll talk a little bit about what might have gone through my head, but, um, you know, my parts of my life were passing before my eyes and it was not a, it was not a good feeling, um, both to see that I had been quoted in this way and, um, to see that my boss, uh, needed to see me. So the story evolved and, uh, it actually took me all day to get to see the congressman. He was busy and I assumed he would want to do whatever he's going to do quickly uh, and would be quite angry, but I couldn't, I couldn't get in to see him. And um, I finally got in at the very end of the day, maybe 6 p.m., 6.30 p.m. And I got into his office and he started asking me questions about other stuff we were working on, including uh, budget reconciliation and other things. And I was, you know, at first sort of dumbfounded, but I sort of tried to hang in there. And <laughs> right. our conversations were usually me giving information, but also seeking to learn. Um, and um, we sort of came to the end of that stream of discussion and he seemed done. And mm -hmm. I said, Howard, didn't you want to talk about this? <laughs> and I held up the clip. And he said, he looked at me and he said, yeah. He said, do you understand why that's problematic potentially? And I said, oh my God, do I understand <laughs> why that's problematic? You know, I was on background, I thought, you know, and I guess I just gave, you know, this reporter too juicy a quote and, you know, and or she forgot. And, uh, and he, and the next thing he said was, all right. He said, all right, forget it. He said, just learn and, and we'll go on. You know, just forget it. And he and he took and he took his copy of it and he crumpled it up in front of me and threw it in this craft can. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it was at that moment in terms of how he handled it um, and how that made me feel that, uh, you know, made it easily my favorite mistake. So I want to kind of you know unpack some of the lessons learned and yeah. you know the leadership style and everything involved there. But going yeah. going back to the reporter, you were wondering out loud: Did the reporter forget? Was it a misunderstanding? What, like mm -hmm. you said, was it too juicy? Where it was a bit of a betrayal? You don't really know. Mm -hmm. I, I I don't know, and I uh, and I I don't recall ever finding out. I think I felt so vulnerable in that position that I was certainly going to um, guard my P's and Q's very carefully with that reporter and probably with other reporters uh, for a while after that. But I, but I, I did not feel in an empowered position to kind of, you know, confront, you know, that reporter, et cetera. So I don't, uh, I certainly don't have a memory of understanding uh, what literally happened. So can you elaborate a little bit more on that immediate lesson learned? You said you know, maybe uh, being a little more careful with that reporter or other reporters was the mistake, as, as you described, giving something that was too juicy or or what, what was the adjustment then in talking to reporters? Yeah, so, you know, it's interesting, Mark, because my my deepest lessons from that uh, from that mistake are really in a different place or how the congressman handled mm -hmm. me making a mm -hmm. mistake from an authority mm -hmm. standpoint. Um, but I, but I do think um, when one has experiences like that, you become a little more reflective of sort of other people's roles and how you interact with them. And um you know, I think my assumption in some degree, my assumption still is we're all on the same team. We're on the side of truth and light. 
um, and, uh, and, and to sort of proceed quite openly that way. Um, I do think it's important, particularly when there's other people's sensitivities involved to realize that you, you, you know, there are patterns to be careful about, you know, even sometimes, um, you know, beyond doing technically the right thing as I did by saying I was going on background, uh, but reiterating and things like that. So there were probably some slight behavior modifications. Um, but again, I'm proud that I didn't sort of shut down and, um, you know, I, although I also think, you know, it's interesting, Mark, um, there was another lesson that I got from it, which is when I read the quote about the senator's bill, I was not proud of it. Um, it, it was in some ways sort of what I felt emotionally and, there, you know, and it was defensible, but it was not constructive. Um, and uh, I did not like the thought of my parents reading me quoted in mm-hmm. such a sort of slang based fashion. Uh, uh-huh. Sort of paint, painting with a pretty broad brush. Uh-huh. Yeah, I mean, it was yeah. a, so. it was it was a colorful phrase. I mean, maybe the ability to turn a colorful phrase when pointed in a good direction helped you then later become a speechwriter and yeah, and, and do some other yeah. things. Yeah, that's right. And uh, yeah, I I did uh, because I uh, my sort of in terms of career sense, I survived this mistake. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that. But uh, I was able to go on to, you know, a role with the House leadership and uh, uh, the Democratic Party as a as the policy director and speech writer. And, and um, yeah, so just very fortunate um, to have had these learning experiences on the way. And, you know, as you know, the theme of your podcast, it's, it's often the things that go at least slightly wrong or sort of in some sense viscerally wrong. And in the in the process around it, that teaches the the most fundamental lessons. Yeah, like you said, it's 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 about learning from the mistakes we all make them, and better to learn from them and to have back to the leadership question. Um, yeah, you know the, the 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 leadership point that you raised about the congressman's reaction. You know how a leader responds in the face of the uh, of an error means a lot. Um, whether it's in any, you know, any workplace, politics, healthcare, what have you. I mean, I could see a a different boss or a different environment where you would have been at best really chewed out, maybe having your job threatened or being put on notice. And do do you think the congressman had a sense of, well, Ken learned from this? He probably feels bad enough, no reason to make him feel worse. I think so. The con- we don't. He doesn't need to be anonymous. This congressman was Howard Berman, who I to this day hold in, in very high regard. He's no longer in Congress. Um, but um, you know, I would be role playing if you know to put myself in his head and what he assumed. But I, but I think that like many great leaders, Howard is a people developer, and he took real pride in his team and that people who were bright and wanted to help make the world a better place were willing to work with him. And he clearly saw it as part of his role to develop us, but also, you know, there's a trite word of power, uh, but it was, you know, really to partner with us, you know, on these things. And he, you know, and he was not, uh, you know, he was not falsely humble. He was a super bright person and he was also not, you know, overly malleable. He had his strong views about things. 
but he viewed himself as very much the leader of the team. And, uh, you know, there are many moments that connect to this for me where I could see him taking pleasure in the quality of our work and, uh, and sort of the dynamics of how we work together, you know, uh, you know, as a team, you know, not just me and him or, you know, one-on-one, but, um, everybody felt well supported. Um, I think it was part of his, um, he was also very comfortable with power and trying to make things happen. And again, like other good leaders, I think he he understood the power of people really being turned on to do great things and supported to do that. Um, and, you know, many other members of Congress have a very different leadership style, which, you know, is based on a lot of aggression and, um, you know, taking advantage of their authority over others, but he quite deliberately chose a different way. Mm. So, um, you know, I want to bring up um, you know, a topic or a thought here that's come up in some other episodes previously, this idea of yeah. um, psychological safety. And I'm just yeah. going to read, and I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes. There's a page on the Valley Capture website that talks about psychological safety, the important ties to improvement. And, you know, the one definition of psychological safety says, I'll paraphrase a little bit, a workplace, an environment in which you feel included, safe to learn, safe to contribute, safe to call out problems, safe to make mistakes, safe to challenge the status quo, all without fear of being embarrassed, shamed, blamed, marginalized, or punished in some way. And there's, there's, I think, you know, uh, two reflections I'll share. One is that Value Capture works with healthcare leaders to help create this environment within the healthcare organization. Um, you know, for, for, for me, working with Value Capture, and again, to the listener, you know, Ken is CEO of Value Capture, an organization that I do a lot of work with. I, I feel that sense of psychological safety internally, where I could come to you, Ken, and say, hey, Ken, I made a mistake, or Ken, I said the wrong thing to a client and the client's upset. I feel like I would have the safety to bring that forward for a constructive conversation, not to get blamed, not to get yelled at, not to be belittled or threatened in some way. So I, I, I appreciate that, that, that that's your leadership style. That, Mark, that means uh, so much to me and I feel very imperfect at it, um, but uh, certainly, you know, got the pattern early from Howard and others and my parents as well. And um, so, you know, that you, you feel like we've together created that kind of environment. And, you know, and similarly, I feel safe with you, you know, uh, and I feel like, you know, I, I sort of treasure your candor and that of the other team members. And, you know, uh, people don't hesitate to say, uh, Ken, you could do better on that next time. You know, so that's, uh, that's good. That's good too. It's, uh, like, like many things, a never end your never ending journey, um, to, yeah. to create and strengthen that environment. We all have moments yeah. where we, we don't live up to the standard we hold ourselves to when it comes to yeah. leadership behaviors and. Those yeah. are part of the mistakes we learn from. That's right. That's but, right. Um, yeah. Oh, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, you know, uh, you know, I will never forget what it felt like the burden lifting, lifting as he sort of, you know, indicated how he was going to deal with it, and that literally sort of putting it aside, and that connection to psychological safety. Um, you know, I felt included i felt you know safe to make that mistake uh and you know as a fundamental member of the team in the enterprise 
in a in a way that um, you know took on you know much more depth after that moment, right? Because you'd sort of been at a low point, at a scared point, at a fear point, at a psychologically unsafe point, you know, in my own head, and he transformed it. And after that, um, you know, I was, uh, you know, I was uh, forever in, you know, with Howard uh, because I knew he, he, you know, was committed to that environment and had demonstrated. Mm-hmm. And and I think whether it's you and the congressman or or me and other leaders at Value Capture, or thinking of nurses or other healthcare professionals and their leaders, I think that psychological safety response of, you know, not rushing to blame the individual, not belittling them, what, not saying things like what's wrong with you, like instead looking at systems and processes and those contributors, taking that view doesn't then provide um, carte blanche to go keep repeating That's the right. same mistake or to be reckless. Right. Like there's, can you, can you talk about some of that balance of why, that environment of psychological safety and those leadership behaviors end up leading to more improvement and better performance. Sure, Mark. And, uh, um, you know, there's so much there. So, um, you know, Toyota, we learn a lot from Toyota and Toyota has this phrase that people have to be freed from the problem. So they're free to work on the problem. And really beyond that, um, you know, required to work on the problem, anything we're part of, because we're, we were part of it. We have very close knowledge of it. Um, it may touch our function or we may have been directly, you know, uh, part of it. And the only way we're going to keep problems like that from happening in the future systemically is if we really work hard together on prevention to learn from what happened, um, and to build stronger processes together so that the people are really supported to not make that mistake. So whether it's, um, you know, deepening our training, um, you know, changing our procedures for when, you know, very young aides talk with, um, you know, uh, national reporters uh, and or, um, you know, really in a way much more significant examples of that in healthcare um, to, to allow, you know, staff uh, to, to succeed in what they want to do in caring for patients in very unsafe, you know, high risk systems, uh, without, without making errors, um, then, you know, then that's how we improve. So the, the, the psychological, um, freeing is crucial, crucial. It is not carte blanche, as you say, it is freeing you from the fear part of it. So your obligation kicks in to be part of the improvement. And the and the energy converts, and certainly if you're not showing a commitment to um, the learning or um, you know the, the deepening of the capability cycle that's going on in the organization, then that that that's that's a different set of behaviors that says you know do I do we really want to get better or not, and that you know that of course would have to be checked. But most but most people when given psychological safety, especially um, when things go wrong, you know, respond much as I did, you know, in terms of, you know, not that there isn't sometimes processing that has to happen, but, um, you know, who are further into that improvement cycle. And I think part of the leadership mindset is this belief that people want to do good work. People don't want to make the boss or the party look bad 
through a quote in the paper. People don't want right. to make mistakes in healthcare that might end up harming a patient right. or worse. Like, uh, if you could share a little bit more of you know your thoughts of of that belief, or you know, how do we develop that idea that you know everybody does want to do good work? How do we tap into that instead of assuming the opposite? Yeah, and um, you know, and again, coming from that very earliest experience, and then through Mark, the, the things that we do together in healthcare, and those we've learned from, you know, it is it is so much always about the people and 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 how they feel and and what they want to do, and what they want to do is is succeed in their work, you know, and if we think about it in healthcare. It is, it is to help people get better. And that's what everybody gets to work wanting to do every day. And so um, when you think about it as, as you know, the, the potential for an error or harm is, uh, it, you know, is not a quote in the paper, but actual damage to human beings, physical life and the, and the emotional damage beyond that, um, the stakes are very, very high. And um, again, the great leaders in healthcare and those that have their organizations reach the highest level, as you say, rooted in this recognition that people aspire to succeed and to do great work and to fulfill their human promise. And that if that's true, then our job as leaders is to inspire that in part by picking out the right goal, right? That, that says we as an organization are going to learn together how to keep everyone safe, you know, zero harm for our patients, zero harm for our staff. Uh, and by the way, as you, as you hinted at and introducing value capture, that's sort of a, 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 a way of making our values true and also learning how to be excellent in, you know, amidst very complex high risk processes. So we start with the inspiration. And then we uh, attach the learning system to that with the psychological safety to learn quickly, you know, to when things go wrong or aren't right, to bring them out into the open and to systematically analyze them using a set of principles, uh, make changes and share those changes, you know, either to recover from something gone wrong or, or a risk. And the moment we take the different uh, philosophy, as you suggested, you know, which might be, you know, and we've seen this, Mark, why, why do, you know, I, I need better people, you know, I don't know why people can't get this right. When, when our mindset says, you know, my folks are letting me down, you know, as a leader, what that does is means that there's going to be a blame part of the reaction. And that that will do further damage to the person who is part of the incident because they, of course, want to succeed. And then it has this horrible impact on safety itself and on excellence itself, because um, if there is any way that I can make sure that the mistake I was just a part of or the risk I just detected does not become known to anyone else, because I think I'm going to be blamed for it a significant portion of people will protect themselves by sort of hiding that information. And then sort of ipso facto, we can't improve. Mm -hmm. So one other thing I wanted to ask you about, and again, our guest is Ken Siegel from uh, the firm Value Capture. You, you mentioned earlier learning from Toyota. And when you yeah. talk about leadership and, and one of the companies that learned from Toyota was Alcoa, That's the right. CEO at the time, 
um, was uh, Paul O'Neill, uh, who passed away in um, 2020. You you had the opportunity to really work with him a lot and get to know yeah. him a lot. What did you learn from Paul O'Neill uh, about improvement and helping prevent mistakes or learn from mistakes in a workplace? Yeah, Mark, I appreciate you asking that. And it, you know, in a, in, in a way, um, everything I've been talking about since the you know my favorite mistake story is you know profoundly influenced um, by how Paul O'Neill himself framed and taught these ideas and the evidence he created about you know how by creating the right level of psychological safety and attachment to aspirational goals and um, and then a rapid transparent improvement cycle that people really could do great things. Um, so, so many of these ideas and proofs are rooted in Paul's work as a leader and his desire for all of us to recognize these truths um, and to take them in as, as leaders, formal and informal, and make them part of our lives so that, you know, human human beings and humanity can can progress toward really you know doing the remarkable things we're capable of so you know just uh just a couple examples you know paul you know believed that safety and pursuing safety you know physically but also the psychological safety around it was a way to create evidence that the mission statement you said for your organization was actually true because you actually weren't hurting people um, and, uh, you know, so very concrete way to, to create this dynamic that we're talking about. And he, he had this way of thinking about goals that he coined theoretical limits, which means that if the laws of nature and, uh, you know, uh, you know, don't prevent us from doing something because we physically literally can't by the laws of nature, then it's possible. And, uh, and using that to sort of open up our thinking about what's, what's possible for us as human beings. Um, and the other, the other part attached to that, you know, what this all really was meant to serve was sort of dignity and respect for every human being equal without any, you know, regard to any distinguishing factor that they have. And the, you know, and the special obligation of leadership to create the conditions by which, you know, that dignity was respected. People were given the tools and the support needed to make a difference in their life, as I was, you know, very early by the congressman, you know, despite making a mistake and then recognized for the work that they were doing and, and supported as part of that system. So, um, you know, it just sort of could go on and on about things learned from Paul in this vein, but it's really his example that we're building from. And for people who would like to learn more of uh, these lessons from Paul O'Neill, you know, he was featured uh, in the Alcoa story was featured in uh, a chapter of the book, The Power of Habit by Charles Duhigg. Um, we have uh, a couple of free eBooks on the Value Capture website. One is a collection of uh, transcribed speeches from Mr. O'Neill talking to healthcare audiences, but it's really, it's about leadership. It, I think the, the benefit of uh, the, the message goes beyond healthcare. And then there's another uh, ebook where people like Ken and uh, physician leaders and, and others, um, you know, talked about the influence, the, the lasting impact as, as that book um, is titled. So I'll link to all of that in, in the show notes. And we also have uh, a, a podcast series that I produce and host called Habitual Excellence. And uh, we encourage you to search for that. There are discussions with, um, with Ken and, and with others. Uh, the topic is sometimes the influence of Mr. O'Neill, but then 
in a lot of episodes, it's just people talking about yeah. their, the important work they're doing to improve healthcare, the leadership role. So I hope people will check that out as well. I agree. It's great work, Mark, and you always do a, a really great job facilitating those conversations and bringing out the important points. Well, thanks. I appreciate that. Um, the, the website is valuecapturellc.com. Uh, we'll link, I'll link to that in the show notes as well. Um, Ken, maybe as a, a final question, like if let's say you know it's a, the the classic elevator speech question of you're you're somewhere and um, a hospital CEO ends up on the elevator and introduces you, and maybe it's a relatively tall building, and that executive were to ask you in your words, Ken, what, what does value capture do? How do you explain that? Well, what I would say is, you know, our mission is habitual excellence, starting with safety. And, you know, as you, you know, explained about our belief that human beings want to do great things, we believe leaders want to leave great legacies uh, that people will remember them, uh, you know, long past they were there because they helped other people, the organizations that they lead accomplish remarkable things, starting with keeping all of their people and their patients safe, but going on to be the best in the world at everything that they do. And so out of some of these very fundamental beliefs, Mark, that you and I talked about, what I would say to that leader is, you know, by setting the right goals and then creating the right learning system behind it that sort of unleashes people's um, desire to do great work uh, and guides it, you know, um, we can help them leave the legacy as a leader that they are in their heart hoping to. And so when you talk about aspirational goals, um, you know, the aspiration to leave a great legacy, the aspiration to have nobody harmed, um, whether that's providers, healthcare employees, or patients, that does rely on, like you said, the, the learning system, and that includes learning from mistakes. And so that's why I, I knew you would have a, a great story and reflections along those lines here on my, on my favorite mistake. So I appreciate you being here, Ken. Absolutely. And it was fun to talk a lot about healthcare, but talk about uh, some of the universality of these principles as your, mm-hmm. as your podcast shows, Mark. So starting with, with one from outside healthcare for me. Yeah. Well, thank you for connecting those dots, Ken. Uh, again, our guest has been Ken Siegel, CEO and Managing Director of Value Capture. And again, you can learn more about uh, the firm. And um, this is a rare interview where I get to say our work instead That's of right. saying hit their work. Um, you can go to valuecapturellc.com. Ken, thanks again. This has been really great. Appreciate it. Mark, Mark, thanks for having me. Well, thanks again to my colleague, Ken Siegel, for being our guest today. To learn more about him and his work and more, look for links in the show notes or go online to markgraven.com slash mistake 147. As always, I want to thank you for listening. I hope this podcast inspires you to reflect on your own mistakes, how you can learn from them or turn them into a positive. I've had listeners tell me they started being more open and honest about mistakes in their work. And they're trying to create a workplace culture where it's safe to speak up about problems because that leads to more improvement and better business results. If you have feedback or a story to share, you can email me, myfavoritemistakepodcast at gmail.com. And again, our website is myfavoritemistakepodcast.com.